April 6, 2012, in Belfast. So I'm sure you're all familiar with the philosopher Descartes. And he was trying to figure out what is the most essential item of truth from which we can reason everything else. And he decided the most essential item of truth is our own existence, and how do we know that we exist? And he decided that we know we exist because we can think. So, according to the Vedic scriptures, the most essential feature of life is not necessarily thought, but feeling and desire. Just like, say, this plant over here. So I would guess that this plant doesn't have very many thoughts. But it definitely has feelings. And it has some desires. It has desires at least for light and for water and for air. And even there's been some experiments that show that plants react chemically if someone walks in the room and thinks about pulling them up by the roots. So they have some feelings and some desires. It's interesting that the Sanskrit word bhava means emotion, and it also means to be, like we have our English word to be. I am, you were, they are, we will be. Existence. So the Sanskrit word for existence or living being is very much related to the word for emotion. So, of course, our emotions in this world are often troublesome. We certainly want a life full of emotion. We wouldn't want a life simply full of logic. We want to have feeling. At the same time, our emotions... They're, they're like the, the essence of our life, and at the same time, they're a problem for us. If we're overwhelmed by emotion or controlled by emotion, then we do and say things that later on we may think, oh, I don't know if I should have done that. And if someone's totally overwhelmed by emotion without being able to control it with rationality, then we'd say that they were mentally ill or mentally unstable with emotion, with desire, with feeling. So it's, I've noticed that in every society that there are certain times and circumstances under which people are allowed, or even we could say encouraged, to display very strong emotion. Like, say, sporting events, or entertainment events, certain life junctures such as weddings and deaths, or under the influence of intoxication. In all the cultures of the world, there's some sort of socially acceptable and perhaps partially even socially mandated intoxicant. And under the influence of an intoxicant, you're allowed and encouraged even to display strong emotions, isn't it? I've heard that there are some countries, especially like some of the Scandinavian countries, where you're expected to be very, you know, reserved 
but then periodically you're encouraged to get very uh, intoxicated and display your emotions. So we have this sort of quandary about our emotions and desires. We wouldn't want a life without them, yet we're not really quite sure how to manage them. And we like to have extreme emotions. We don't even want to go through life just having sort of pastel-colored emotions. We sometimes want to have vibrant, full-color emotions. Extreme, extreme joy, even extreme fear. You know, I, I remember seeing signs for uh, advertisements for a movie many, many years ago, some horror movie, and it said, you know, as close as you can de- get to murder and still walk away. If you see this movie, you won't sleep for two weeks. And people were paying to be frightened. Or on an amusement park, you know, where they have those rides where you go upside down. and So you're paying to be frightened. There's some enjoyment in that. Where people sometimes take pleasure in becoming very angry, very sad. That was a really good book. I just cried through the whole thing. So we want to experience these extreme emotions, and yet, if we were always experiencing extreme emotions, we wouldn't be able to function. We wouldn't even be civilized. Part of being a civilized human being is that one keeps one's emotions under control. One generally doesn't display them very much at all in our daily life. So I want to look a little bit at this topic because this word bhava or emotion is also a word that indicates the beginning of the mature stage of spiritual perfection. And Rupa Goswami uses the word bhava as when one, when the flower of enlightenment is opening, the precursor to the fruit of prema. So how do we understand our material emotions? What's the relationship between our material emotions and spiritual emotions? And a little bit about the incredible personalistic philosophy that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu has taught that we're participating in in the Hare Krishna movement. So Srila Prabhupada talks about three aspects of the subtle body, uh, the astral body, the mental body. He talks about thinking, feeling, and willing, or thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. And this is a very integrated system. So what we do affects what we think and how we feel. What we think affects what we do and how we feel. And what we feel affects what we think and what we do. It's very difficult to have those things out of sync. You know, if you, if you are thinking and feeling something very different from your behavior, it's quite uncomfortable. And generally, we try to get those things in sync. In fact, we'd say that a really integrated person or a person of integrity is a person whose behavior, thoughts, and feelings are always in harmony. Of course, for most of us, that is not always the case. You know, we sometimes do things that we really were thinking, I don't like this. And we're not enjoying what we're doing. And the things that are the real joy in our lives and the things that we really believe in may be different from what we do. Uh, But that would be somebody who's really integrated. 
So let's look at also the different aspects, not only thinking, feeling, willing, as a very integrated system, just like our process in Krishna consciousness is we try to hit at all levels. My Krishna says, Manmana bhava mad bhakto, majaji manmaskaru, mam evachas yuktaiva. This is, always think of me, become my devotee, worship me and offer obeisances unto me. So think of me is with the mind, become my devotee is with the emotions, offer obeisances to me and worship me is the behavior. So Krishna's looking at all of those, the thinking, feeling, and willing. And our bhakti yoga is a system of using our thinking, feeling, and willing, our thoughts, our emotions, and our body, our behavior in spiritual service. So now we're going to look at the subtle body through a little different angle. We're going to look at it through mind, intelligence, body, and soul. So the business of the body, of course, is to carry out, ideally, in an integrated system that works the way it's supposed to work. The business of the body is to carry out the directions of the mind and the intelligence. Again, we don't always do that. Uh, Sometimes we act differently than our intentions, isn't it? You know, we say, okay, I want to do this, and then we're in a situation where we're conflicted and we do something else. But ideally, that's what the body does. It's an instrument for carrying out the desires of the mind and intelligence. And the intelligence, called buddhi in Sanskrit, is what makes the overall plans. And then the mind is what accepts or rejects things in harmony with the dictation of the intelligence. And the intelligence, in a properly integrated system, is directed by ourselves, the soul. So the analogy is of a chariot with horses, and there's a driver, and then there's a passenger. So the chariot is the body, the horses are the senses of the body, the working senses like the arms and legs, and the knowledge-acquiring senses like the tongue and the ears and the eyes. The reins are the mind, the driver is the intelligence, and the passenger is the soul. So ideally, the soul says, I want to go there. (laughs) The intelligence then makes a plan to go there. Okay, if we're going to go there, then we have to turn right here, we have to turn left here, we have to go straight ahead, and at that landmark, we turn left. And then the intelligence uses the reins of the mind to direct the senses to say, okay, there's the landmark. At that landmark, we're supposed to turn right. And then there's a harmonious system and an integrated system. Now, of course, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes what happens is that the senses of the horses, they hear or see or smell or taste something, and they start pulling the chariot this way and that way to their own destination. And then the mind and intelligence is just being dragged around by the senses And the self, our real self, the soul, doesn't get to go where it wants to go. And again, as we're saying, the subtle body, the mind and intelligence is made up of this thinking, feeling, and willing, directing behaviors, thoughts, and emotions. So in a materially conditioned life, we are accustomed to having a non-integrated system. And we're accustomed to ending up following our senses around or following our mind around. I remember visiting one primary school where the children had written, had drawn a poster that says, I follow my mind wherever it goes. And this is what most conditioned souls are accustomed to as their everyday reality. 
Oh, I, that looks like it's something good to eat. I think I'll eat it. Oh, that looks something like that's something good to watch. I'll watch it. Oh, that's a pleasant sound. I will listen to it. Now, of course, if someone's totally like that, then they're an animal. That's the platform that an animal or a very young child is on. That if something is attractive to my senses, I just do it. So, to some extent, one is. But there's like this this pulling, you know, that this the soul's giving some directions and the intelligence has a plan and. And yet the senses are pulling in another direction and it's this battle going on all the time between the thinking, feeling, and willing, between the body, the mind, the intelligence, and the soul. And therefore we may think, well, wouldn't it be better just to get off the chariot and just sit in one place and be peaceful? Why have this thinking, feeling, and willing all together? Why don't we just stop thoughts Why don't we stop emotions and why don't we stop activities? Because in conditioned life, my activities, my emotions, and my thoughts, they're very troublesome. Isn't that a fact? It's hard to focus our mind on what we want. It's hard to experience the pleasure of emotions without being controlled by them. It's hard to get our behavior in line with our ideals. But as we said in the beginning, the concept in bhakti, the concept taught by Mahaprabhu, is that there is a platform of spiritual emotion. In fact, there's a platform of spiritual thought, a platform of spiritual behavior, and a platform of spiritual emotion. So let's look at the difference a little bit. So material emotions are based on what's called the modes of material nature. So Krishna explains in the Bhagavad Gita that one can understand the material world as a combination of three modes. Something like a film is a combination of three different colored lights. And everything is created there. And you can have all different films. You can have a a film about traveling to another country. You can have a film about romance. You can have a horror film you can have a philosophical film, you can have a nature film. I mean, you can produce so many different films that bring out so many different thoughts and feelings in the audience just by combining those three different colored lights. So in a similar way, everything in this world is a combination of three modes of what's called sattva, rajas, and tamas. Sattva means truth, goodness, something that exists. Raja means passion, a raja also can mean a king. Uh, so it's a, this passion is the passion of righteousness, the passion of wanting to enjoy the world in a righteous way, in a way, and wanting honor for one's righteousness, wanting to be known as an upright person who does the right thing. Rajas is the mode of ethics and morality. And then tamas is ignorance. So in Thomas, one wants to enjoy the world in an unrighteous way. One wants to enjoy the world through violence and through cruelty, uh, through laziness, through intoxication, through sleep, etc. So these three, and they can be compared to red, yellow, and blue, sattva to yellow, rajas to, to red, and Thomas to blue, although they can also be compared, sattva can be compared to fire and rajas to water and Thomas to air, meaning uh, transforming energy, liquid energy, and gases energy. So anyway, these combine to create the phantasmagoria of our lives. This body, 
is actually a combination of these three modes of nature. I mean, on a, on a more specific level, you can say it's made of bones and blood and, and skin. Uh, but just like the different figures on a screen are actually made of three lights, so this body is actually made of the three modes, even though it's also, we can say, being comprised of these elements. And our mind and our intelligence is also made of these modes. Now, we, the soul, have nothing to do with these modes. We are the witness. We're made of pure spirit. But everything we're experiencing here is a combination of the modes. And we, the soul, are actually a witness. So this is explained in the fifth chapter of Bhagavad Gita and in the thirteenth chapter. That as the body, the mind, and intelligence are doing things in this world, we, the soul, are not actually doing them. Just exactly like when you watch a movie, you're not doing anything except watching the movie. You know, you're not jumping from the helicopter to the roof of the building. Although it may feel like that when the hero does that. You may feel as if you're also doing that. You know, when the hero wins the gold or whatever, you feel some exultation, although you're not actually doing that. You're just a witness. Or people who play computer games where they manipulate some character in the game that they identify with, but they're just sitting in the chair. So all of our material emotions are caused by these modes of material nature. And we, the soul, are not actually feeling them directly. We're feeling them indirectly. Exactly, exactly like you're reading a book, you're watching a film, the character in the story is experiencing an emotion, and you experience it by identification and association. But it's not really our emotion. When there's something scary in the movie, there's nothing scary actually happening to me. So the fear that I'm feeling is just by association. It's just by identification. The happiness I feel when the character is successful, it's just by association. So the same is happening in this body. Because this body that I have and this identity that I have, I'm an American woman, I'm an Irish man, I'm an Indian lady, I'm a Brazilian man, I'm young, I'm middle-aged, I'm old. It has nothing to do with me. The only difference is that this illusion created by Krishna is so much more expert than any filmmaker or any book writer. You know, when you're watching a film or reading a book or playing a computer game, you always have some sense that I am different from that. There's some part of you that that is aware of that. Whereas in this illusion, uh, we often lose practically almost all awareness that I'm just the witness. So those material emotions, they're, they're just created by a phantasmagoria. According to my desire... Just like I may desire to see a sad movie or I may desire desire to see a romantic movie. But still, it's not having to do with me. And my material emotions are caused by bodily chemicals. Again, it's not actually me, the soul. It's just some sort of physical phenomenon that's coursing through my body and therefore inducing me, as we've said, it's an integrated system between thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. 
And certain things are going to make me feel sad or make me feel afraid or make me feel curious. But it's just a biochemical reaction. And I really had an experience of this many years ago uh, when I had a, a miscarriage in mid-pregnancy. And I remember I was holding the, the dead baby in my hand. It was about this big. And afterwards I found that I was, I was very sad. I was grieving for quite a long time. And my midwife said to me, Ormila, you're not really grieving for the child because you didn't really know the child. She said, you're grieving for how you projected that child into your life. And after she said that, I thought, yeah, it's a fact. What, am I, what exactly am I grieving over? But I found that I couldn't stop grieving. And I became almost like two people. It was like a part of me was grieving and a part of me was an observer. Oh, look at that. That's interesting. And I had a very clear sense that my grief was caused to a large extent just by chemicals. You know, that the female body is designed to have mothering chemicals, and when there's no baby to mother, what are you going to do with all that? There was no place to put it. My next youngest child was 10. You know, I couldn't, like, put him on my lap and rock him to sleep. And I thought, this is just chemicals. Now, that doesn't mean I could stop crying when I saw, you know, a pregnant woman walking around. But I just thought, oh, that's interesting. It was something happening in the body and to the mind, but I could see it wasn't something happening to me. That I was something separate from that. Now, material emotions are also based, and this is a little difficult perhaps to understand, but they're also based ultimately on knee-centeredness. Because according to the Bhagavad Gita, the reason we get a material body and a material mind and intelligence is that I want to put myself at the center of the universe. I want to consider that things are meant for my enjoyment. And I have a sense in that false position, because I'm obviously not the center of the universe, and everything in creation is obviously not meant for my enjoyment on a rational basis. But if the soul has a desire like that, that desire not being able to be fulfilled in reality has to be able to be fulfilled only in illusion. And it creates a sense of incompleteness. And this is very nicely explained in the Ishopanishad. The Ishopanishad says, Om Purnamada Purnamida, Purnat Purnarudachate, Purnasya Purnamadaya, Purnam Eva Vasishate. Now, the literal meaning of that is this is complete, that is complete. From the complete, so many complete units come. When you take the complete away from the complete, still the complete remains. And the essence of that mantra is that the supreme absolute truth, Krishna, is complete. And everything that comes from him is complete. And even though complete units come from him, he always remains complete. When we have a sense how we are connected to the absolute truth, to the supreme whole, to Krishna, we also feel complete. Just like when my hand is connected to my body, my hand is a complete unit. But if my hand's cut off from my body, my hand can no longer function as a complete unit. Now, I can't actually be cut off from Krishna. That's not possible. But I can have an illusion of being cut off from Krishna because as soon as I decide that I want to be 
the source of everything, and I want everything to be for my pleasure. Something like the hand deciding that it's going to rub food into itself instead of putting it in the mouth. So as soon as I think like that, I have an illusion of being cut off from the body. I can never be cut off from Krishna. But in this illusion of being cut off from Krishna, I have a sense of incompleteness. And being focused on myself and what I want and what I need and having an illusion of incompleteness, my material emotions are simply manifestations of my feeling of incompleteness and my efforts to become complete in an illusory way. Now this is a, what I just said is very deep. But once one understands it, one is no longer under the control of one's material emotions. I was speaking to someone just the other day who was a supervisor and told me how one of the employees would sometimes be very troublesome. And when this employee would complain about things, the supervisor was saying how he would get, become very uh, nervous and shaky and afraid. We had quite a discussion, and I asked the supervisor, what exactly are you afraid of? And he said, well, I want my employees to all understand that I wish them well, that I'm trying to help them, that I'm trying to facilitate their work, that I'm not their enemy. If I have to make some change in the way the business is run, or I have to introduce some sort of austerity into the business, it's for the good of, of each of them, and it's for the good of the company. And we were discussing how this employee was probably never going to see that. And this employee was probably never going to be appreciative and considerate of the boss and see things from the point of view of the boss and actually understand how the boss cared for all of the employees. And then we were discussing, why do we think that we need this? Why do you think that you need your employee to actually be appreciative of you and considerate of you? As soon as we feel that we're cut off from Krishna, then we think, we start feeling, well, I need people to care about me, I need people to appreciate me, I need people to be considerate of me, I need people to treat me with respect, I need people to have clear communication with me. We may not even be aware that that's how we're thinking. But those thoughts lead us to become happy when people do those things for us, to become fearful and angry when they don't. With the illusion of separation from Krishna, I think I need food and I need clothes and I need air and I need shelter. But you know, we don't even need those things. When the body dies, the soul doesn't die. The soul is not actually dependent even on air. We are giving life to the body. The body is not giving life to me. So one who is connected with Krishna doesn't have these anxieties. But if we have this sense of being disconnected from Krishna, if I think that, that oh, I need this thing and I need that thing, and if I don't have this thing and I don't have that thing, that I'm not going to be complete 
in that state of neediness, we enter into a kind of desperation. And all of our material emotions stem from that. And there's all sciences of psychology that explain how our you know, so-called positive emotions come when we feel, oh, my needs are being met, and our so-called negative emotions come when we feel our needs are not being met. But concepts of our needs being met or not being met are all coming from this illusion of being separated. That I feel I'm not complete and I need something external to myself in order to be complete. Spiritual emotions are very different. So spiritual emotions are not a working of the modes of material nature. They're not a working of body chemicals. Spiritual emotions are impelled by Krishna, who is the absolute truth. It's something like the difference between emotions felt watching a film and emotions felt in real life. The difference between looking at a picture of food and actually eating food. Spiritual emotions are real. There being uh, the impetus for those emotions, it's called udipan in Sanskrit, are things that are true, that are eternal, not things that are false and flickering. And they're based not on my relationship with this temporary body and the chemicals that surge through it when I've had enough to eat or I haven't had enough to eat and my blood sugar is high or low or I'm tired or my health is good, or my health is not good. But they're based on our relationship with Krishna, the absolute truth, instead of with a false and temporary body that's undergoing certain changes. And spiritual emotions are not impelled by a false idea of me at the center. They're impelled by the real idea that Krishna is at the center, and my relationship with him is one of love. And spiritual emotions come from a feeling of completeness and giving that love freely, without any neediness. Starting from the platform of connection and completeness, giving love voluntarily, rather than starting from the illusion of separateness and trying to pull things into myself to make myself feel complete. And material emotions, uh, they often leave us bewildered or drained or embarrassed. Spiritual emotions give us satisfaction, an ever-increasing satisfaction. They're always dynamic. One feels fully satisfied but never satiated. With material emotions, we get satiated but not satisfied. Sorry, could you sit up again? Sure. With spiritual emotions, we're satisfied, but not satiated. With material emotions, we get satiated, but not satisfied. Let's think about uh, any material pleasure. You can pick anything. Everybody like ice cream? Okay, so eating ice cream. So if we had ice cream for breakfast and lunch and dinner, and ice cream for breakfast and lunch and dinner, and ice cream for breakfast and lunch and dinner, We'd become satiated. 
we'd get to a point that we'd say, I don't want any more ice cream. But we wouldn't find ultimate satisfaction. We could have satisfaction for a little while, but it wouldn't stay. And it wouldn't be all-encompassing. It wouldn't be unlimited. No matter how many flavors of ice cream we ate and how much ice cream we ate, we wouldn't feel ultimate, complete, never-ending satisfaction. We'd feel a temporary small amount of satisfaction for a small amount of time. But we would get satiated. We'd lose our ability to keep enjoying the ice cream. So we wouldn't find full satisfaction, but we would reach a point where we couldn't take any more. Whereas with spiritual emotion, it's exactly the opposite. One feels complete satisfaction, total satisfaction, but yet can keep having more and more and more and more and more. There's no satiation. So spiritual emotions are increasing, always increasing, in quantity and quality, and also satisfying. So in the second chapter, the end of the second chapter of Bhagavad Gita, Krishna explains something we often call the fall-down sequence. How we come under the sway of material emotions. But this fall-down sequence also gives us a clue as to how we can get ourselves into spiritual emotions. So Krishna talks about while contemplating the objects of the senses, one develops attachment for them. From such attachment, lust arises, or lust, great desire. From this desire, anger arises. From anger, illusion. From illusion, bewilderment of memory. And then one falls down into the material pool. So with material emotions, we think about something. So I had this example happen recently with somebody where a friend of theirs... We'll call it Bob, and we'll call them Bob and Joe. So Bob told Joe, "Hey Joe, I'm going to get you a house." And Joe thought, "Oh, I'm going to have my own house." But what Bob really meant is, "I own a house that I'm going to let you live in." But Joe, meanwhile, thought, "Oh, my good friend Bob is going to buy a house for me." And when Joe found out that Bob was going to give him a free house to live in rather than a house in his name, Joe got very angry. Why? Because he'd been thinking about it and planning it. Oh, I'm going to get a house in my own name. I'm going to be able to do whatever I want in it. And then when he found out, actually, the house would still belong to his friend, but just be his to live in, he became angry. So first we think about something. How nice it will be if I get this, if this person treats me like this. Well, I'm going to talk to my employee and, and tell her about what's happening, and then she'll say, oh, yes, I understand your dedication to the company. You know, we get something that we're contemplating. When I buy that new watch, you know, it's really going to be exactly what I want. Whatever it is, whether it's an object, whether it's an action, whether it's a dealing with another person, whether it's some change in our life, we contemplate it, we think about it, we think about it, we think about it, until we become attached to it. We start thinking, yes, that thing, that place, that activity, that relationship, that will feel this, fill this emptiness inside of me. It will bring me completion. It will bring me everything I'm looking for. And as our attachment to it increases, then our emotion and our desire becomes very strong. Comma. I must have it. We can become even obsessed so that we're thinking about it all the time. We'll talk about this a little bit tomorrow with the worry. Do you have a projector and a screen? Okay. 
So with the seminar we're doing tomorrow on finding peace instead of worry. So one will start become almost obsessed by some things. I've got to get that particular pair of shoes, or you know, I have to get this degree, or I have to marry that person, or I have to go to this place, or whatever. And then if we either don't get it, so many of the things we want we just don't get, isn't it? Just don't get them at all. I mean, there's certain things I'd really like, and I just can't seem to get them. Nobody sells them. Nobody will make them. I can't find them anymore. And I'll think, doesn't anybody else want this thing? Am I the only one in the world who wants it? Why can't I find it anymore? So some things like that, you just, oh, just like my alarm clock. So I have this folding travel alarm clock, and the light broke. And I thought, oh, when I'm in the airports, I can find another one. Nope. Not what I wanted, anyway. The ones in the airports, they fold up in such a way that you, the button will get pressed in your suitcase, and the battery will be all worn out by the time you open up your bag. So then I thought, well, I'm going to be in central London. Surely I'm going to be right by all the, the electronic stores on Tottenham Court Road. Surely they'll have a, a, an alarm clock. And all they have were these funky things that look like Big Ben and make a whole lot of noise. Or ones that use some sort of specialized battery that if your battery you know, wears out when you're in Calcutta, then you're out of luck with your little alarm clock. And I'm thinking, doesn't anybody else want a simple folding travel alarm clock? So some of the things we want, we just don't get. They just, they just don't seem to be there. And other things, we get them, and we're disappointed. You know, we get them, we think, yes, this is what I wanted. And then we actually get them, and we go, oh, it's not what I wanted. It doesn't work the way I want. And this is true whether it's an object, whether it's a job, whether it's a house, whether it's a human relationship, whatever it is that we're disappointed. And then there are things that we get and they're perfect and then they're temporary. That's, I think, the worst. You know, you finally find something that you like. There was a certain kind of like this. Oh, here it is. I wanted a jumper like this for so for years traveling because it doesn't weigh anything and it folds up into a little ball and it fits in my suitcase. And I was looking for something like this for a long time. So I finally found one and then the first thing I think is, well, what happens when it gets a rip in it and it wears out? Where will I find another one? It took me five years to find this one. So I don't even get to enjoy it because this was all the time I'm enjoying it. I'm worrying about when it's going to be gone. Every time I wear it, I'm thinking, I've got to make sure I take care of it because I'll probably never find another one like it. I have a good friend who told me that her parents had a very, very deep loving relationship. She said when her father died in a car accident, as soon as the funeral was over, her mother got into bed and never got out, and a year later she also died. So when we have something that's beautiful, you know, if you have a beautiful, loving relationship with someone, or the perfect jumper, or the whatever, uh, then we're always filled with anxiety. When will this thing go? Therefore, after comma, after great desires, anger. Anger that I didn't get it. Oh, nobody has an alarm clock that I want. Or anger that it's not what you wanted. You get it and it's like, why isn't this what I wanted? Why can't you be what I wanted? 
our anger that we lose it. Oh, it was my favorite jumper. And we just ruined it. And from anger, bewilderment. When we get angry, we've all had experience, we get bewildered. We lose our intelligence. We lose our memory. Uh, we don't know what's right and what's wrong. So this is the fall-down sequence by which one becomes overwhelmed by material desires and material emotions and gets caught in this whirlpool of false identification. But interestingly enough, this same sequence can be used to develop the spiritual emotions. And this is the beauty of bhakti. The beauty of bhakti yoga is that we're doing things that we already know how to do materially, but we're just applying it to something that's true rather than something that's false. But the basic process is a process with which we're all familiar. So Krishna says in the first verse of the seventh chapter of Bhagavad Gita, Maya Shakta Manapartha, become attached to me in your mind. But we all know how to do that. We all know how to become attached to something. You start by contemplating it. You think about it. And you think about how this thing or this relationship or this activity or this interchange is going to bring us completeness. Well, if we think about Krishna, guess what? We will actually find completeness. So if we contemplate Krishna and we become attached to Krishna and we have desires for Krishna, it will not lead us to anger and frustration and illusion, but to satisfaction. So that is our basic process. Everything we're doing in the Hare Krishna movement is simply to get us to a point where we're always thinking of Krishna with attachment and with desire. That's the whole purpose. Whatever rituals we perform, whatever practices we do, whatever, whatever behaviors we're recommending, they have that as the purpose. They're not just simply ritual for the sake of rituals. Everything has a meaning behind it to bring us to actually think of Krishna and become attached to Krishna. And this is the real way we conquer over our slavery to material thoughts and material emotions. To awaken the spiritual emotions. Now many people who want enlightenment and want spiritual perfection are simply trying to bring the material thoughts, material emotions, material activities down to nothing. They're trying to get the mind, the emotions, the desires, the activities down to nil. Now that's a real yogic process. We're not saying that that's not a real yogic process. And it can work, but it's extremely difficult. Krishna describes it as klesho. Klesho dikatarashtesham. Avyakta shaktitejasam. Avyakta higatir dukam dehavad biravapitejasam. It's very troublesome. It's very unnatural. You know, if you don't want to watch movies anymore, you don't want to play computer games, it's not that you just stand still. You get involved in something that's genuine. So our bhakti process is to get involved in something that's genuine. Now one might think, well, I can't get involved in the genuine thing until I first become pure and make the material thing zero. But that's not the process of bhakti. The process of bhakti 
is even when we're full of material identification and material motion and material thoughts and we're overwhelmed by illusion, we start thinking of Krishna. We start contemplating Krishna. And as we contemplate Krishna, our contemplation of material things naturally goes down. To whatever amount we contemplate Krishna, that takes up some room of our contemplation of other things. I think of it also like if you have a hand, handfuls of plastic pearls. And if you take a real pearl and put it in your hand, it'll knock out one of the plastic pearls. You don't have to empty your hand first. So even if we're full of swirling material thoughts and desires and emotion, add a little Krishna. As soon as we add a little Krishna, the material will go down a little bit. Add a little bit more Krishna, the material will go down. And then gradually and proportionally, pretty soon we're filled with thoughts of the reality. And pretty soon we'll actually be swimming in an ocean of spiritual emotion, which makes us the most sane and the most stable because there we're in touch with reality and actually connects us with the complete. And these spiritual emotions are not just peace and happiness. Many people think spiritual emotions are only going to be like Om Shanti. Like, I don't know if you guys ever float in the ocean here in Ireland. You just look at it. Never float in it, huh? Just look at it. Too cold. Too cold to float in. All right, well, it's not just... Jumping in and out. Jumping in out very fast. (laughs) Very fast. Very fast. But at least the peace from watching the ocean then, if you don't have the peace of floating in the ocean. So the peace of sitting on the shore, just watching the waves and the ocean. But spiritual emotion is far, far beyond that. All of the material emotions, which are on the platform of illusion, have their counterparts in some spiritual emotion. Grief, fear, anger, all of the material emotions that we might even brand as negative. But spiritually, they're all blissful. Again, we can understand this, that people enjoy sad movies, or they enjoy scary movies. People enjoy and pay for the so-called negative emotions. So in in spiritual emotions, there's no such thing as a negative emotion. All of the emotions are signs of completeness and fulfillment. And all of them can be experienced in different relationships with Krishna unlimitedly. So that is the goal of our bhakti yoga process, to awaken our real self and to experience our real desires, our real emotions, and our real activities. And our primary way to do that is by thinking about Krishna, by chanting his name, by doing things for him, by hearing about him, and by then that way absorbing ourselves in the truth. So it is exactly 7 o'clock, which is pretty cool because I didn't have a clock in front of me. So, Thank you. Well, you're most that welcome. Amazing. You're most welcome. Thank you for having me here. And any questions, comments, discussions? Yes. And I even read the papers without my glasses. That's also astonishing. I don't know how that happened. Must be the luck of the Irish. 
Hopefully I'll carry that with me. Yes? We have a light there. Yeah. We have a light there. Yeah. But the uh, question about the soul and a conditioned soul situation in a material world, is the conditioned soul active or inactive? Is the conditioned soul inactive. asleep no. or, or inactive. awake? Awake. Partially awake. Like... In a dream, you're more awake than when you're sleeping without dreaming. <clears throat> Material life is like a dream. So I've been comparing it to a movie and a, and a book and a computer game. And there's a reason why... And the scriptures is compared to a dream. Uh, the reason why I prefer comparing it to a film or a computer game, which weren't in existence when the scriptures were written, is that... In a dream, I know that my dream is not real because the other persons in my dream do not share that experience. So if I see you tomorrow and say, oh, I dreamt about you last night and we had dinner together, and you'd say, well, I don't remember that. So therefore, I, I code it as unreal, although when I'm experiencing the dream, it seems to be real. But in a computer game or a movie or a book, other people are sharing that illusory experience. It's, it's a group illusion. So this, this world is a group illusion. So we, we all, we don't have exactly the same experience, but close enough so that we figure, well, everyone else is experiencing like that. It must be reality. And at what point, when you practice bhakti yoga, when you can say, well, this soul is sleeping, right? And this soul is awakening. It's, what is the transition? Where is the barrier there? Where I'm, is not, I'm not trying to fool you. Like, I'm just trying to see what, where is No, that's a, that's a very good question. So, the, uh, this is described very nicely. So, this is described very nicely in the Bhagavatam. And I, I believe the place it's described most clearly is in a book called Madhurya Kadambani by Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur, which is a very, very short book, about this long. It's the kind of book you can read through several times and memorize practically. And there, uh, Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur describes the stages of awakening. Now, just as a caveat, I've been able to identify in the scriptures at least 18 different descriptions of the stages of going from a sleeping conditioned soul to an awakened enlightened soul. And those 18 descriptions do not all precisely correspond with one another. In other words, you cannot take a description from one stage and match it up to a similar description in another stage. And I've concluded that it's something like, this is a little aside, but I think this is important, aside. It's something like if we describe the process of growing up as a human being, the process of coming from being a child to an adult. So you can talk about physical development, sexual development, social development, uh, emotional development, intellectual development, and so forth. And you can talk about the stages of each of those, but they don't necessarily correspond. In other words, a person who's at a certain stage of physiological development may not be at a corresponding stage of social development. Does that make sense to everybody? So I see that these different analyses, analyses of the progress 
towards enlightenment or, or the waking up process is a very nice way to put it. Are, they're all describing the same thing, but they're often describing it from a different angle. Or they're, they're looking at different aspects of the enlightenment process. And therefore, they, it, it's not one thing that's just described in different ways. It's different aspects of the same thing that are being described. Uh, okay, having said that, he talks about a progression which Rupa Goswami also describes of what's called Shraddha to Prema. And Srila Prabhupada, throughout his purports and lectures, often refers to this particular way of analyzing the progression. And in this analysis, when one comes to a platform called Nishta, then one is really starting to wake up. Now, this platform of Nishta, which is, Nishta means steady or to stay someplace. Stita means to be in a place. It really means that one is is no longer affected by the modes of material nature. One's not totally free of them, but one's not affected by them anymore. Just like I was describing that after I lost that child, I definitely went was going through a time, it was well over a month, almost two months, where my body was going through certain chemical reactions, but I was not actually affected by them. Now, you, you couldn't have told that by looking at me, because... If I saw little children or pregnant women, I would cry. And sometimes I would cry for no apparent reason at all. I mean, it was sort of... But it was just interesting. When those things would happen, my, my, my internal feeling was very detached and curious. My internal feeling was, oh, that's interesting. Look at that. I'm crying because I see a woman with a baby. How interesting. Does that make sense to everybody? No, that makes sense. Okay, so that's that kind of detachment. Uh, you could compare it to you go to an electronic shop and they're selling televisions and to sell the televisions they're showing movies on the screens. So you're seeing them but you don't have any attachment. You're in the store, you're seeing them but you're not identifying with the movie. You're not watching the movie. So as you walk by, somebody's house gets on fire. But you don't feel anything. You just, oh, that's interesting. Does that make sense? Or you drive on the road and there's been a car accident, but you don't know anyone who's in the car accident. So you just look and you see, oh, it looks like somebody's really hurt, but oh, someone else is taking care of it. There's some curiosity, but there's a, there's a sense of detachment. So you're still seeing it, you're still in it. Full enlightenment, you're not even in it, you're not even seeing it. You're only seeing the reality, you're not even seeing the illusion at all. You only see truth. But the beginning of waking up, you still see the illusion, but you see the illusion as an illusion. Do you, do you not invest any energy in that then? You don't, there's no impulse. And you don't, as a side effect of an impulse, you don't invest any energy. You don't invest an energy of trying to use the illusion to become complete because you already feel complete. Right, yeah. yeah. But because the illusion is also Krishna's energy, mm. it's Krishna's movie, it's Krishna's game. Brilliant. You may enter into it for his purposes, but you no longer enter into it for the sake of getting anything for yourself. 
because you already have everything. And you see it for what it is. You see it that it's an illusion that's the energy of Krishna. Prabhupada talks about seeing the naked form of material desires. You see things as what they are. You can still, you may still invest some energy in using them for something, but you're able to use them properly because you know what they are and what they're meant for. So is this like Shetra Gyan? Like the Nara of the field? Yes. You actually know the field. You actually yeah. understand the field. You see things as they are. You see things in the right perspective. Now, there's still going to be some influence of the modes on your body and mind, but it won't affect your inner state of consciousness. Your inner state of consciousness is neutral. And that's nishta, as you call it. Yes. Okay. And is awakening is nishta, or awakening is when the rag comes? Awake. It's very difficult to say absolutely what happens at what stage. Just as when you go from a child to an adult, you know, at what point are you going to be attracted to the opposite sex? Who can say? For each person, it's going to be a little different, isn't it? You can't just say, well, definitely at this stage of physiological development, you're going to have those feelings. You might have those feelings a year later or a month before. It's, isn't it? You, you, can't, you can't make it. So also... Although you can, you can say that the attachment to Krishna happens at, after Nishta, there's some attachment to Krishna that's happening even in the very beginning of Shraddha. I'm not arguing, I just want to know no, what no. you're feeling. Yeah. And I don't mind if you argue either. You, you, can, you can argue too, I won't object. Can, can I might I, defeat you. But the illusionary uh, perception uh, or, or the world being an illusion, the con common concept of uh, what we call impersonalist is that it's just a common illusion. You, know, you just have to wake up from a dream. Whereas, uh, as I understand the Vaishnava theological view, is that it's a real uh, substance, it's real elements of earth, water, fire, all real elements. All pradhan is real. It's what is in unreal is our desires that we project in it. Mm. Well, it's just a dream is also real. A dream is electrical impulses in the brain. It's not nothing. When you're dreaming, it's not that nothing is happening. Something is happening. But what you think is happening is different from what is happening. Now, you said earth, water, fire, air, ether is all real. It's not real as earth, water, fire, air, ether. Those are temporary manifestations of it. Dream also ends. Yes, and this world also ends. So Krishna says of the of the real, there is no cessation. Of the temper of the unreal, there is no endurance. So just like the lights temporarily combine together to make it look like someone jumps from a helicopter to a roof of a building. Now, maybe there was an actor who did that, and maybe there wasn't even an actor who did that. Maybe it was just done on a computer. You know, if you go on a computer and you, you create a character on the computer, and the character in your computer jumps from a helicopter to the roof of a building, what's actually happening? Well, you could say it's electricity. You could say it's ones and zeros. 
you could say it's a mechanical arrangement within the computer. But in no case is a man actually jumping from a helicopter to a building. <clears throat> so something's happening, but what's happening is not what it appears to be. What's happening is something different than what it appears to be. So this material energy in its unmanifested state is called the perdon, where you cannot separate solids, liquids, and gases. There isn't such thing as gold and oxygen. There isn't even the basic elements, the things that we consider invaluable, an element. I would, I, my guess is, in scientific terms, that the atoms break apart in the proton, and that there's protons, neutrons, and electrons just floating in free form, that they haven't combined into, that's my guess of how to put it in scientific terms, I'm not saying that that's correct. And then they temporarily combine. How amazing Krishna is that he can take the same ingredients. I mean, if you gave me flour and water and salt, I could make a whole lot of things. But, you know, Krishna takes protons, neutrons, and electrons, and by combining them in different ways, he can create so many incredible things, different atoms, and then combine the atoms into molecules. And he can put gases together and make a liquid. I mean, it's pretty amazing. And then at the end, everything is dismantled. Uh, some dreams, some dreams are like uh, manifestations of energy that is in the greater self that's touching on the actual spiritual plane. This energy that's in the greater self of a person, of an individual, is touching on the same energy as what that is that's on the spiritual plane. Um, but because we're not performing the right actions and we're not having the right need and the right desires, then it's manifesting as, as a dream, as some kind of messy kind of sequence of events that's, that's on a dreamy level. Now that's a very interesting point. I don't think anybody's ever brought up a point like that to me before. Because the greater self is very in, in There touch. are cases where in a seeming dream state, apparently as a dream, one experiences a spiritual reality. But that's not actually a dream. There are three states of consciousness in illusion. Deep sleep, dreaming, and wakefulness. Spiritual reality is another state called Turya, which just means the fourth state. And one could say that there's many, many states of higher consciousness. Now, what's interesting, we might think that wakefulness is the closest to spiritual consciousness. It's actually the opposite. There's a lot of clatter in Spirit, Spiritual consciousness is, a, is, from a material point of view, a very, very deep trance. Yeah, tranquility. It's, it's a state where the material mind is silenced. And one's functioning on the level of soul. And one will appear to go into a state that's much, much deeper even than deep sleep. And just like in deep sleep, one loses one's awareness of the external world, which is a, done intentionally in the yogic process called prachidhara, as far as the dhyana yoga or astanga yoga process. That's breath, is it, prachidhara? Prachidhara is you, you remove your senses from the external world. Ah, the total. Yes. Yeah. Something now we don't practice astanga yoga. That's part of that's part of a yoga ladder, and we don't do the yoga ladder. We do the lift. Yeah, there's a lot of ego around the yoga stuff, isn't there? It's certainly very possible. Yeah, 
It's certainly very possible. And I have a whole, I have a three-part presentation on bhakti versus the yoga ladder, and I don't know if I want to get into it that much right now. But, but it is very interesting. And when, when one is actually in a trance, whether due to dhyana yoga, practicing prachitara, or due to our process where we do it out of attachment and love for Krishna, then one also can lose all awareness of the externals and enter into a state that we might say is like a dream, but it's actually much, much, much more real than a waking experience. Yes. So in that kind of state, one is actually touching the spiritual. Yeah. Now, this, this is very advanced stuff, but there's, there's two levels of that. That's called the state of samadhi. Mm. And there's two kinds of samadhi. One is material and one is spiritual. So the material one is on the platform of intelligence. The mind has been quieted. One is functioning on the platform of intelligence. One is unaware of one's external circumstances. And one is envisioning Krishna and the spiritual world using the material intelligence. It's like a fixation. Yes, it is. It's a total fixation of consciousness. But it's actually still a creation of the material subtle body. It's still not real. But because it's about the reality, it gives one incredible bliss. And it's usually philosophers or uh, 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 somebody who has this reflexive, who who sees the some sort of uh, ideological elements or... Could be, yeah. but this is even uh, experienced by the bhakti yogi. Okay. So if you read in Nectar Devotion, text 8, this is described. And Prabhupada explains it other places also. It's explained by Lokapula Dev in the third canto, or the Bhagavatam, that one uses the mind as a hook to capture the Lord. So even if, if we're not so expert in jnana yoga, if we're just sitting down thinking about something about Krishna that we read in the scriptures, if we're thinking how Krishna lifted Govardhan Hill and we make a mental picture, you know, having looked at a painting and having read a description in the book and we make a mental picture in our mind of Krishna lifting Govardhan Hill and if we start to become absorbed in that mental picture, just like any of us here, we could start making a mental picture of some place we've been and something we've done and we could become so absorbed in that that you wouldn't hear anything I'm saying and you wouldn't know what was going on around you. We've all done that, right? Haven't we all done that? So if you do that about Krishna and you become one-pointed, you become so absorbed in your internal meditation on Krishna that you more or less lose awareness of your surroundings. That internal meditation, especially because it's touching something that's true, has an amazing effect on the self. And one will think, this is it. I'm actually seeing Krishna. And one may get to a state of such meditation that one will even, just like in a dream, you can taste things and smell things and touch things. So one can also do like that. But the higher samadhi, and the lower samadhi does not turn into the higher samadhi. What the lower samadhi does is it attracts Krishna. He becomes interested in it. Just like if someone's always thinking about me, I become interested in them. Isn't it? 
right? If someone's always thinking about us, or someone's thinking about us very deeply, I, I have some interest in that person. So Krishna becomes interested in us. And when he becomes interested, then he manifests himself, he comes himself. And then one enters into actual spiritual samadhi, where one is factually absorbed in the reality. That does not happen with the mind or the intelligence. That happens on the platform of the soul. And then the next step after that is Krishna appears before you face to face. Thank you very much. It was very comprehensive. Yeah, they all still that was that was good, yeah. Three consciousness and that the oh, you like to the dream. Okay. Sorry, what's the second one again? The Krishna the when it goes from the mental image to Krishna comes to you then. Yes. Because Christians often say this that everything going up and come down, Christ come down to live among us. Yeah. Mm. Krishna comes to you and then comes he, into your he, heart then? He manifests in it in, in mm. your heart. Mm-hmm. It's only in purified intelligence. It wouldn't happen in unpurified intelligence. Krishna is independent. When Krishna was on this planet, he appeared even to people like Kamsa. So Krishna is independent. Don't limit Krishna like that. So even if you're a beginner in bhakti yoga, if Krishna decides to manifest himself, you don't tell him to go away because you're not pure enough. I know people who've done that. Don't do that. So if you're chanting Hare Krishna and Krishna manifests himself to you to some extent, just be grateful. You mentioned at the start that it's a soul that has the desire to be here and that Krishna grants that desire. Why do you think God's soul has the desire to be here to begin with? Yeah, that's the, per- that's the perpetual question. Um, this is not a cop-out. The answer to that you have to ultimately see. I have not found any intellectual way to give a satisfying answer to that question. I will, I will do my, She said, how is it the soul can have a desire to be here and be an illusion? How is it possible? That's the perpetual question. So I'll tell you in advance, I cannot give you an answer that will be fully intellectually satisfying. And I can also tell you that at a certain point in Bhakti Yoga, you will see the answer for yourself. That seeing of the answer for yourself will bring you to a very, very deep and real and satisfying and intense humility, which is the gateway to the higher realms of bhakti. The answer to that is that we are grade A, number one, certified, blothering idiot. It's just like if you say, why does anybody smoke? Now, I'm sorry if any of you have ever smoked or smoke now, and I don't mean to offend you, but there's no logical reason to smoke. Nobody sits down and does an analysis and says, well, I'm tired of breathing clean air. Why don't I smoke? It's an irrational decision, but it's a decision that a lot of people make. And if you say, why do people do that? Why would anyone substitute healthy lungs and a healthy heart and a functioning body to smoke? I mean, what benefits does it give you? Just because you could. Was this pleasure? 
But my, I know I've never smoked, so I don't know. But the people who smoke, they don't seem to say it's that much pleasure, that it's worth it. I mean, it have to be really high pleasure to be worth that kind of a risk. 95% of the social pressure. I know why people smoke. Why? Because tobacco has a, a very alkalizing effect on the blood mm. balance. People people eat so many foodstuffs that are acidic, uh-huh. forming in the blood. And there's some balancing and, when they do thoughts it. are acidic as well. Mm, that's thoughts interesting. Make the blood acidic. As soon as they take tobacco, it like it just alters the, the blood chemistry. Interesting. Back to alkaline for a bit. Like people have steak and some chips, and they have a cigarette, and it and it just balances out all the acid and all the. Interesting. The chips. Yeah, interesting. The Red Indians do people at high altitude like to smoke. Because it balances like that. Okay, so yeah. why don't we take, why do people eat meat? Yeah. But they would have to shot them afterwards. Okay. So, you know, wh- why, do, why do people do that? Why do people live by, by eating animals? There's not a rational reason for it. And if anybody thinks about what they're doing, they'll stop. Probably very comforting. An earthbound man, a man. Okay, but none of these are none of these are rational decisions. Lamb and beef are very comforting to eat. I don't eat meat, but but I'm. But people find them comforting. They find lamb and things like that very dense nutrition. It's very comforting to eat for a man. So you could also say that there are reasons why a person might want to experience illusion, curiosity. I don't think you can compare them really, because for all of these things, you're using your senses to. To say, I, I want to smoke, or I want to do this. So you're, you're using your senses and saying, I enjoy this. Mm. Whereas the soul has full knowledge. But it's possible. If the soul cannot choose something that's illusion, then truth is not an act of free will. Say that again. If the soul cannot choose illusion, then being in truth is not an act of free will that we wouldn't be alive. The difference between something that's dead and something that's alive is that something that's alive can say no. It has will. So we have the ability to say, no, I don't want to be in the truth, I want to be an illusion. We have that ability. Why did each of us individually make that choice? that we will see at a certain point of purification. It's not a pleasant thing to see, but it's very liberating. It's not pleasant to see, oh, I really made a very foolish choice. Why did I make this choice? What was driving me? What brought me to that? It's liberating because once you see why you made that choice, you can unmake it. And until you see why you made that choice, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to unmake it. And seeing why you made that choice is the real depth of humility. So are you suggesting that every soul has the reason is individual? To some extent, yes. You you can make some generalizations, Prabhupada makes some generalizations that we've made that choice out of envy. But that's a a very generalization, and, and how that plays out for a particular person is going to be very individual. Regarding smoking, I know some people, when they are under stress, they, they start to smoke and they feel relaxed. They feel some relaxed. But think about the price. So, all right, maybe, the, maybe you get something out of smoking. 
but the price is so high. So if it's a rational, nobody would make that as a rational decision. Nobody would say, well, I'm going to risk, you know, having lung cancer and heart disease and having a, you know, what do they call it, where they cut that hole in your throat so you can talk and, and things like that just to get a little relaxation and balance my, you know, acidic blood. The price is really, 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 really high. So it's not, and my point is that it's not, you can't really give a rational decision for that. You know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't generally pay 100,000 pounds for one lollipop. And coming into illusion is something like that, that you're paying 100,000 pounds for one lollipop. It's not really a rational decision. It's a decision based, based on, on foolishness. It's like going crazy. Yeah, but it's uh, what I can compare it to also is like, let's say you have a very capable, intelligent, accomplished person who's never drunk alcohol in their life. And out of curiosity and a little pride, they think, well, let me try it. So they try one drink of beer and they say, oh, well, I just feel a little happy. I didn't lose all my intelligence. I didn't lose my money. I didn't lose my family. I didn't become a bum in the street. It was all right. And then they gradually drink more and more and more, and then maybe one day they become a bum in the street, lying in their vomit in the gutter. And it's a very gradual thing. So our, our decision to go into illusion is also a gradual thing. So it, uh, Prabhupada describes that when we first decide to play with illusion and we try to be the center of the universe, we become Brahma, who's practically like the god of this universe. And we still have great knowledge. We still see Krishna. We're still doing service for Krishna. It's a very slight fall. Very slight. And I'm sure that there are some souls who do that and say, oh, that's enough. Like some people drink one drink of beer and say, never again. Another, you know, one can then become attached and more and more and more. It's not that... It's not that we were in full knowledge and enlightenment and then poof, we're a human being in Kali Yuga on the earth. That's a result of a very, very, very gradual fall down over many, 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 many lifetimes. And there were many opportunities to turn around and and go the other way. But after a while, one gets to the point where it's very difficult. So once once one's come to this point, then it's become difficult. Like someone who's already become an alcoholic, it's not so easy. Did you have a question? That yeah. woman sitting here. I have loads, but do you have your hand? No, no but he has something else. What would you like to say? Well, it was first on what we were talking about. Well, one thing is, uh, no, I'll skip the first one. Go back to maybe the, the, well, I don't know how long we have, so. Well, I'll go maybe another ten minutes. Okay. Um, back to uh, just trying to understand. You know, we were talking. You were talking about how I can understand to some extent how we can over, how we can control the mind and overcome, you know, feelings and be detached. And I had this experience a long time ago reading Ernest Hemingway who said in a book that um, nothing can hurt you if you do not care. Mm. So. Uh, one question is about the danger then of becoming uh, a bit, you know, cynical and, mm. and, and feeling less. Excellent. Uh, but we want to develop the spiritual feelings. Correct. So how do we, 
How do we become detached without becoming callous? Brilliant, thank you. That's my question. Okay. There you go, this quarter is Detachment that can, and often does, lead to callousness it happens when you go up the yoga ladder. It doesn't happen when you take the bhakti lift. The yoga ladder is, I become a pious person, then I do detached action, then I stop all action in the world and study philosophy, then I really stop all action in the world and go into meditation through a sangha yoga process. Then I become completely nothing. Everything is stopped. Everything is clear. I don't care about anything. From that point, then, I try to care about the spiritual. Now, first of all, that whole process is extremely difficult. It is rarely accomplished in one life. It's usually accomplished in many, many lifetimes. And many people fall from the path along the way. It also runs with it a great risk of becoming callous and hard-hearted or becoming very angry or falling back into the same thing that you left. That it's something like if a person um, goes on a 20-day fast and cleans out their system and then starts eating right. You know, that's hard to do a 20-day fast. Most people aren't going to do that. So the bhakti yoga process is very different. Where the, the, the yoga ladder is you have all these plastic pearls in your hand and you get rid of all of them and you have empty hands. And then you start putting in the real pearls. The bhakti yoga process is you immediately take a real pearl and put it in and it knocks out a plastic pearl. So you're never empty. That from the very, very beginning you start thinking about Krishna and becoming attached to Krishna and developing our actual finer sentiments in relationship to Krishna. Which naturally make us disinterested in the material. And when one's about here, one is actually starts to awaken. Not even here. It's not that you have to wait till you're here before you start to awaken here about the middle way. When you're about half when about half your hand is full with real pearls. So we want to deeply care, but we want to deeply care about reality. What is the point about deeply caring about an illusion? You are real. Your particular identity right now is an illusion. Are you Irish? Norwegian. Norwegian, okay. So this identity of I'm a Norwegian woman, that's an illusion. That's a temporary thing. In another life you were something else. In another life maybe you were a Brazilian man or whatever. But you are real. So I can care about you. So I substitute, instead of caring about an illusion, I care about the reality. I don't stop caring. Thank you. We need your care. <laughs> we could take one more. Was that all right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very practical and it's very natural. You, you never have to put yourself in a position of emptiness. If you're putting yourself in a position of emptiness, that's not bhakti yoga. It's a different yoga process. And it's that other yoga process we are not recommending. 
another question then, since that, my question has been answered. So let's say you are in a mode of anger over a situation, mm. a material emotion. Okay. I mean, beforehand you know you shouldn't get angry, and you do everything to try to stop getting angry. And sometimes you do are successful not getting it, but sometimes you snap. Yes. And anger is a funny thing, isn't it? It can, or, like, fall on you. Or jealousy, or something. And you yes. know, it's just... How do, how, how, do you, how do you find it possible to switch out of that mode? Okay. To switch into the spirit? Okay, let's take anger. Mm. So anger is... Almost, for, Krishna talks about attachment, fear, and anger. Generally, not always, generally, anger comes from fear because of attachment generally well over 90% of the time so when you're angry stop what am I afraid of it's a really amazing thing what am I afraid of what am I attached to what's being threatened what do I think I'm going to lose what do I think I won't get what do I think I need what do I think this other person, we usually get angry at a person. What do I think this other person is supposed to, has, they have to do for me? Or how do they need to, I think this person has to respond to me in a certain way in order for me to feel complete. I'm afraid. And, and to do this requires some honesty. And you don't have to tell anybody else. So the only person you have to be honest with is yourself. It sounds scary, but boy, it is so freeing. I'm angry because I'm afraid this person won't like me anymore. And if they don't like me anymore, then, you know, I, I, I won't have love. I won't have companionship. I was once staying with a family where the wife wanted to go to the temple and the husband wasn't ready. And they had a little baby. And she said, can you change the baby's nappy now so we can go to the temple? And he said, no, I'm busy right now. Can you wait? She says, I want to go right now. The program's going to start. So they started to argue. And then she said, well, I'm just going to leave the baby with you and I'm just going to go. And she took the baby and stuck, took the baby in her husband's room and started to leave. And then he started to yell at her. <laughs> so, I, you know, she ended up taking the baby and going without him. And I, I, told, I, I ended up being in the house. And I said to him later, you know, what was actually going on there? What were you afraid of? And he thought for a while, he said, I'm afraid that if I do what my wife wants, I'll lose my freedom. And if I don't do what my wife wants, I'll lose my relationship. Now what's very interesting is that as soon as you identify what you're afraid of, the anger will go away. You'll feel immediately peaceful. Oh, I want freedom in relationship. Oh, where am I going to get both freedom and relationship? In Krishna. Oh, why am I looking for it with my wife? My wife can't give me perfect freedom and perfect relationship. I can have that with Krishna. Now, how to do that regularly, one has to practice. It's beyond the scope of what I can teach tonight. But what, 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 what is it? tomorrow, isn't it? Like worry. Oh, well, I'm, well, yeah, we are actually going to look at some of that in that. 
seminar tomorrow. Well, what time is the seminar? Is it just six, six o'clock? We are going to look at some of that. Yeah. I found it extremely helpful. But I always have to look at myself first. Then I can start also be and the situation also. Let's say it's a situation. Let's say it's not a person. You know, although usually it's a situation that involves a person. There's some person involved. Unless you're angry at yourself. Then I also say, you know, what am I afraid of? I'm angry at myself because I said something to somebody with, or, oh, God, I remember. I, um, I was writing a really sensitive email, and I put the wrong name in the send to box. And you have an enabled undo. <laughs> I didn't notice it till after I clicked send. <laughs> Somehow, after I clicked send, all of a sudden I thought, who, who did I send that to? You know how sometimes the, it fills in automatically? Mm-hmm. Oh, and I sent it to exactly the person <laughs> who wasn't supposed to see it. <laughs> and the person I sent it to is a very unstable person. So when I realized that, I got very angry at myself. And then I had to stop. It took me a few minutes. I wasn't able to do it in two seconds. But I was able to stop and say, what am I afraid of? Okay, I'm afraid this person's going to get this email, and they're going to have a fit, and you know they're, they're going to cause so many problems in my life, and there's going to be so many conflicts. And well, what am I? What am I afraid I'm going to lose? I might lose some of my friends. I might lose, you know, my general community, my society, at least among some people. Not that it would affect everybody, but it might affect at least some people that I'm close to. It might damage my relationships, and I wouldn't be able to get love, and I wouldn't be able to get consideration, and I wouldn't be able to get friendship, and I wouldn't be able to get fun. And as soon as I saw that, I'm like, huh? Krishna's giving me all that. I'm not dependent on this person and these other people for that. I'm dependent on Krishna. But it's nice to know specifically. If I just, you know, sometimes I can just say, Krishna's meeting all of my needs, Krishna's meeting all of my needs, Krishna's meeting all my needs, and that's enough. But if it's a real intense thing, then I have to go very specifically. What specifically am I afraid of? You know, what specifically am I afraid of? I remember a time when I was very, very sick and uh, some person was supposed to bring me some medicine and she didn't bring it because she didn't want to bring it. And I was very angry. And, you know, what am I afraid of? I'm afraid I'm going to get sicker and sicker. And I'm afraid I'm going to die. And I'm afraid I'm going to be in pain. Wait a minute. I'm not going to die. I'm a soul. Krishna's in charge of how much pain I'm going to be in. If Krishna wants me to be in pain, I'm going to be in pain even if I get the medication. And if Krishna doesn't want me to be in pain, I'm not going to be in pain even if I don't get it. Mari Krishna, Rakhi K, Rakhi Krishna, Mari K. I'm going to leave it up to him. And then immediately I was peaceful. It felt like I had taken a huge mountain of weight and just put it down. It's like... 
Can I do that absolutely 100% of the time? No, we're pretty close. The times when I can't do it are the times when I haven't dealt with some attachment with that I have. Just a very quick last question. I'm sorry. Don't be sorry. Will, will restricting your anger in such a way... No, it, no, it's not. But will, will it not let it... See... It's not at all. You're not restricting it. Doing what I just said is not restricting it, it's not repressing it, it's not suppressing it. It floats away. Like leaves on a a river. Like a workout. You really need to get it out of your system, otherwise it bottles up and then you just... Well... I'm just trying to see it. Repression and suppression of emotions, although required sometimes in order to be a civilized human being. if you never repress any emotions and never repress or suppress any desires, you can't be a civilized human being. Okay. But repression and suppression of emotions and desires does not really solve anything and, in fact, can cause a lot of harm. What I'm talking about, there's no repression or suppression involved at all, not even slightly. Okay. You, you just, it's like you turn off a switch, it's just gone. You, you're, you're getting rid of the cause of it. But the emotion is there. Is it, no. Is it a working emotion? No, it anger? dissipates. Okay. No, it doesn't. Thinking, no, it isn't anymore. I was thinking that anger, in order to It's like this. Anger, it just goes... Engage it in service. Well, that's another... That's another now you're talking about spiritual emotion. He was talking about material emotion. Okay, good. I think what the speaker is saying is that wisdom dissolves it. No, I'm, I'm actually... It does. I, it actually dissolves it. It just switches it off. It, it's just gone. Yeah. But it, it it's not repressed and it's not suppressed. Yeah. It is, it's, it's like you take the foundation out from somebody. It's nothing to stand on. No, I quite understand how it works. My, my question is, but it doesn't go away unless you completely purify it by engaging it in service. No, no, please don't think about completely. Okay. When you think about completely, you're looking at yoga letter stuff. Okay. You, you don't need to be completely pure. You don't need to completely deal with things in, or, in order to, to progress. Do you want to give him some persona? Yeah, mm-hmm. Excuse me, I have one... So, so that's, does that, does yes, that make some sense to you? It's just simply bhakti yoga and yoga. Yeah, if, if I'm, and the way I'm dealing with it is not just detachment, mm-hmm. but detachment by being attached to Krishna. Okay, so it's two things, two sides of it. Yes. I'm, I'm going to get, you know, so let's say that this person gets this email and damages a, one of my support systems and 20 people hate me. Let's say that happens. So what? Krishna's my friend. I don't need that 20 person support system to be complete and to be satisfied because I have Krishna. You know, if, if I visit someone's house and they don't feed me, but I have a big meal at home, what does it matter? You know, if the queen's my friend, what does it matter that somebody on the street disrespects me? So it's like that. I don't just become detached from it. I become attached because I have something else. If I have, you know, 10 million pounds, what does it matter if somebody steals one pound from me? It's, it's irrelevant. I don't need that one pound to get anything because I've got 10 million pounds in the bank. So if someone's threat, if, if there's some threat to something, I get angry generally, almost always. I get angry because there's some threat 
to, to my material conception of being completeness, of being complete. But if I have, the, I just have to remind myself. So if someone steals a pound from me and I have 10 million pounds in the bank, all I have to do to not be angry is remind myself that I have 10 million pounds in the bank. That's really all it is. Why am I angry they stole one pound? Oh, I'm afraid that if I lose that pound, I won't be able to buy food. I won't be able to pay my mortgage. Well, that's foolish. I've got 10 million pounds in the bank. Why should this matter? If I lose all of my friends, if my body becomes crippled, if my body becomes racked with pain, if nobody likes me anymore, if I'm living in the street eating out of a garbage can, but I have Krishna, then none of that matters. Because he's the source of everything. So you look your fears in the face and you, and you laugh at them. You say, how silly. I have everything. And you can do that even if you're not 100% pure. I'm not even well, 1% pure. <laughs> you know? I'm striving to be a millionth of a percent pure. And I can do that. So anybody can do that. It's, it's not difficult. And the first time it's a little hard and it's a little awkward and it gets gradually easier and easier and easier and easier. And gradually you'll find the only things that you get angry about are the things where you have some deep attachment. And you gradually work on those till you get to the point that there's no more material attachment, that there's only spiritual attachment. And yeah, there, there, is, there is blissful, loving, spiritual anger. But blissful, loving, spiritual anger is enlightening and enlivening and exciting and thrilling and it's not polluting and damaging. But that's, a, that's another discussion. So we should end here because otherwise... I have one question. All right. Save it for tomorrow. Right now we have prasadam. So thank you very much. All glories to Shri Prabhupada.